Scripture reading for this morning's sermon can be found in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I invite you to turn there in the Pew Bible in front of you to page 1434. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Father, I ask for your help now in opening this word as it applies to abortion and its impact upon women and children and men and culture and the wider picture of of orphans in the world and widowhood and the implications of this in many different directions. I am not unaware, Lord, that it will be heard through 900 various ears. Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit would do that wonderful work that he's so good at in mercifully tailoring the impact of the message upon the need of the heart. And so govern my tongue and oversee the heart and mind of all the hearers and grant that there would be a divine transaction here that would result in salvation for any who are lost and strengthening and encouragement for the weak and the discouraged for humbling for any who are proud or arrogant, for direction for those who are confused, for healing for those whose wounds are still open, and for reconciliation for those who are alienated from anyone, and a thousand things that I could never think to pray, but you could think to do in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One way to understand this morning's message is as an application of our series on Romans, which begins again next Sunday. And if you've been around for a while, you'll know we've taken a little leave here from Romans. But if you think back a few weeks, we're in chapter 2. And one of the things we saw in chapter 2 was that there is this hypocrite at the beginning of chapter 2 who's pointing his finger at these bad guys in chapter 1 saying, well, we don't do those things, and yeah, they're bad. And Paul says uh, that those who are pointing their finger do, in fact, do the same kinds of things, and therefore are in big trouble. So he's concerned with hypocrisy, and then he says, in the bigger picture, God's going to call everybody to account, and there's going to be a judgment someday, and he's going to render to everyone according to his works. And we took about three weeks to unpack that from a grace, faith, justification perspective, arguing that it is faith alone that unites us to Jesus, who is the foundation of our salvation, but the faith which justifies is of such a nature that it also sanctifies, and that where a changed heart and a changed life are missing, There's no warrant to think there you have saving faith. Now, James is concerned with hypocrisy also. You see that in verse 26, don't you? If anyone thinks 
teach himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So here's, here's people in this church he's concerned about who are religious. They come to church. They probably pray. Maybe they read their Bible, pray at mealtime, give a little bit now and then. They're religious. And their lives manifest in this verse, in their tongues, that's going on with gossip, swearing, lying, petty put-downs. A tongue that is exactly the same as the world's tongue is belying this claim to religiosity. And it's empty. So this is a big deal about whether they have faith or not. Now, I, I equate religion and faith here. Why do I do that? I'm saying that the word religious in verse 26, you see it there? If anyone thinks himself to be religious, good literal translation. I'm arguing that religious in that verse means if anyone thinks he has faith in Christ. Why do I do that? I do it because the flow of thought, I believe, requires it. Read on and remember that the divisions between verses and chapters were added about 1,500 years after these books were written. So the writer didn't have these divisions, and we must not be confused by them. So he says in verse 26, if you think you're religious and you don't bridle your tongue, but you use it like everybody else, then your religion is worthless. True, pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself pure. My brethren, do not hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. You see the flow? He's talking about Religious, verse 26, pure religion in verse 27, and then he says without a break, there's no faith in our Lord Jesus Christ where this kind of attitude is manifest. So religion is not some hazy spirituality. It's faith in Christ for salvation because he died for us and he rose again and he reigns and he's coming back. It's Christianity. And he's concerned about hypocrites who come to church, believe they have faith in Jesus, but don't. Their faith or their religion is empty. And the mark of the emptiness is in verse 26, a lousy use of the tongue. And in verse 27, a failure to relate to orphans and widows the way we should. So there's where we want to bore in. This is the verse that caused me to choose this text on the Sunday after the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which is 26 years old now and was passed by the Supreme Court in 1973 to the effect that abortion on demand is legal for any reason virtually up till the last moment of pregnancy. I chose this verse to address that issue today on our Sanctity of Life Sunday. So let's read it and then look at it together. Pure and undefiled religion, rather than fake religion or fake faith, 
that is faith in our Lord Jesus. In the sight of God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The first thing I want us to do is notice the two halves of, of religion here, or the two halves of faith. You, you can fall off the horse here on either side, he's saying. Biblically, there's a horse to ride on. The horse of holiness, the horse of balance. And you can fall off on the social justice side. And you can fall off on the personal piety side and break your neck. This verse says, don't fall off the horse. You see the two halves? What is true religion? Visit orphans and widows in their distress. And keep yourself unstained from the world. Now, there are a lot of Christians who like the second half. Oh, yes, sexual purity, financial integrity, keep a clean thought life, amen, and let's stay home and watch TV or build a barrel or something. And then there are another group of Christians who say, hit the streets. It's justice that counts. It's peace that counts. It's weapons that count. It's truces that count. It's the poor that count. It's widows. It's orphans that count. Get off your seat and be a Christian. And live like the devil in your bedroom and in front of your computer. Now, the Bible says, don't fall off on either side. One of you told me a couple of years ago of a project you were on out in the West Coast somewhere. And... Uh, it was a very socially engaged project and people had come from all over the country and it was a justice and peace kind of group and they were pouring their lives out there to do some significant things and on the weekends sleeping around with each other with foul mouths, you told me. Now the Bible doesn't want that to be the case. Lots happening in America today to say you can make that distinction and get away with it. A lot is happening. Well, you can't. Even if you can with Americans, you can't with God. God says there are two parts to Christianity. Visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself pure and unstained from the world. Social justice, compassion and helping people, and Keeping your mind and your private life pure, clean. Personal piety and social engagement. You can't divide it if you want to be biblical and if you want to avoid James's censure that your religion is empty. There are a lot of things that motivate people for the one while neglecting the other or the other while neglecting the one. And if you're only motivated in one direction, you need to check to see if this is coming from Christ. And if it isn't coming from Christ who's whole, it probably isn't coming from faith. And you may wonder if you're a Christian and should wonder if you're a Christian. So, public compassion, private purity, proactive steps of kindness and protective vigilance against defiling sin. Let's be that as a people. Now focus with me on the first half, because that's the one I'm concerned with. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our Father and God, our God and Father, is this. 
to visit orphans and widows in their distress. That's the part I want to focus on this morning. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. What does that have to do with abortion? Well, as I thought about it, here's the direction my mind took. God wants us, according to this verse, to be concerned about orphans. Now, why? Why would there be a special concern for orphans? Well, because they don't have the ones who they would ordinarily expect to protect them and take care of them. They are destitute. They're without mommy and daddy. So picture, just to get it clear, a little three-year-old girl properly buckled into her seat in the back seat and mommy and daddy in the front seat driving down I-35 on the way to the mall and there's this horrible crash and the mother and the father are instantly killed. And because they had served their little one faithfully by buckling her in as they ought, she comes away with just bruises in the hospital down in Hampton County. And she starts saying, Mommy or Daddy, and they're gone forever. So they do some checking around and there are no grandparents, no grandparents, no uncles and aunts. That's an orphan. That's an orphan. And this verse says, don't let her alone. As long as there's a church on planet earth, she is not destitute. That's what this verse says. If there's a church in the world named after Jesus Christ, no orphan should be destitute. Care for that child. Do what you have to do to get there. Doug Oyen was sitting about five rows back last service there where John is. Um, on March 19, has taken a whole team of our people and others, doctors, nurses, and different kind. And he said to me after the service, he didn't know what I was going to preach on, he, he said, you know, the people that asked us to come said, it's all about orphans and it's all about widows. Please bring your medical team because the needs are extraordinary. They'll be going to Uzbekistan. Now, what about abortion? How does this fit in here? Well, painful as it is to some of you to hear this, and I will get around to that soon. Little babies in the womb on their way to an abortion clinic are worse off than orphans. Because while orphans have dead parents, children in the womb on the way to an abortion clinic have parents who want them dead. That's worse. I'll say it again. To be an orphan is to be bereft because your parents are dead. To be a baby in the womb on the way to an abortion clinic is to be in a worse situation because it's to have parents alive who want you dead. And that's worse. So I simply argue with what's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God commands the church to visit 
orphans in their distress because the ones who care for them are dead? How much more would he call for us to visit babies to try to intervene and help rescue them from parents who want them dead? So I think it applies. Unless you say they're not children. You're making an assumption that's just not true. They're not children. Now, you know what? I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Many of us in this room have been involved in this for a couple of decades. And we remember the rhetoric from 15, 20 years ago. And, and we know what it's like today. And it's different. Very different today. You do not hear today on the street and in public debate, they're not children. You don't hear it. It's over. That's not the argument publicly. Oh, you may hear it inside the clinic in desperation as you panic and wonder if you should have a chance to look at this baby on the screen. You might panic and they will say something utterly absurd, like it's a blob or something. But you won't hear that outside where they can be called to account with evidence. That argument is over. And there are about six reasons why it's over. I'll give them to you just in nugget form. We've been through these. We've walked this walk. We've talked with the doctors over lunch who do the abortions. We've been in jail. We've been on the streets. We've been in their face like this. We know what the rhetoric is. And this is not the rhetoric anymore. In fact, Faye Waddleton, last year in Ms. Magazine, she's the former president of Planned Parenthood, said, we pro-choice people have to get over the squeamishness of calling this killing. Reason number one, it won't cut it anymore, is because the scientific evidence is simply mounted so high that everyone knows that the fetus has all the crucial genetic elements to be defined as a human life. Reason number two is that the differences between the unborn baby and the born baby are the differences that don't count in determining whether the baby is a person or a human life. Size does not count. Shape does not count. Looks don't count. Immature reasoning capacities don't count. Physical dependence through an umbilical cord does not count. And the reason they don't count is because they're all true in principle outside the womb of the newborn baby. Even though there's no umbilical cord, the baby might have to go on to dialysis. It doesn't cease to be a baby when it has to get its blood cleaned by a machine called machine, not mom. Those things are absolutely irrelevant when determining whether this is a life or person or not. Argument number three. Doctors treat the unborn as legitimate patients. They do surgery on them. They minister to them. There are two patients written down on the paper. We know these things. These are public facts. Number four, the idea that some Christians, blows my mind, but it's true, use to argue that life, human life begins at breath. Quoting Genesis 2-7, he breathed into them the breath of life, and therefore until there's breathing, there's no human life. That argument shatters on other texts that say the life is in the blood. So if you want to pick 
proof verses to try to decide on the origin of life. There are more verses to say life is in the blood than life is in the breath. I don't particularly like proof texting like that. I think we need to be more careful, but that argument will not stand and very few people are daring to, to take it up in public anymore. Fifth, the age of viability moves back farther and farther such that the line of demarcation between any kind of pre-human and human, pre-person and person is undrawable in the womb, simply undefinable. And the last one that I'll mention, there are others, is that the insistence of President Clinton and others to keep the partial birth abortion procedure legal is a clear testimony, and this is a great providence of God, why he may be allowing this. It is a clear testimony that the absence of personhood or human life is not the basis of defending abortion. Because, I hope I don't have to describe that procedure for you here, because the only thing separating the babies killed through partial birth abortion procedure is three inches, period. Therefore, nobody with any public integrity can argue that it is the absence of a human life or the absence of a person that warrants this procedure. That will fall to the ground in any reasonable atmosphere, which is why you simply don't hear anymore in the public debate that the reason abortion is okay is that the babies are not babies. You don't hear it. It won't stand. Well, what do you hear? What you hear is that the, the moral bottom line is that it's a tragic choice between a mother's plans and a baby's life. Period. Or as Faye Waddleton said, it is killing, it is a baby, and it's my body. The legal bottom line is that the baby in the womb has rights to life in direct proportion to the mother's desires for it to have a right to life. That's the legal bottom line. If the mother wants the baby to have a right to live, the baby has a right to live. And if the mother does not want the baby to have a right to live, the baby does not have a right to live. That's the legal bottom line in America. What brings that to such Clear and amazingly inconsistent testimony in our land is fetal homicide laws alongside Roe v. Wade. In Minnesota, as well as other states, fetal homicide laws can send you to prison for being the effective cause of the death of a baby in a mother's womb. There have been cases. Why? One reason. She did not want that baby dead. But the abortion laws 
say a doctor can go into the same baby at the same age and intentionally kill the baby and it not be against the law. Why? The mother wanted the baby dead. Of course, her wants are all torn up to shreds here, which I'll get to in a minute. But it is the will of the mother that either grants or removes the rights of the baby to live. So what we have in America, astonishingly, I believe with all my heart that history will look back upon these years and say, how could they believe those things? How could they reason like that? How could they have a president who endorsed infanticide? How did that happen? With far more indignation than we look back upon slavery. It's going to happen. Because of the absurdity of our laws. The rights of the unborn in America right now are granted totalitarian sovereignly by the will of the strong and by nothing else. The baby has rights if the strong wills the baby to have rights. The baby has no rights if the strong wills for the baby to have no rights. And both of them are enshrined in law. That's going to be seen as the contradiction of the century someday. Therefore, verse 27 applies to the unborn. Visit, visit them in their distress. Turn to them. Take care of them. Let me broaden this out for a moment here. I'm very eager for us to be a pro-life church in the sense of having hearts that get around this whole issue politically, socially, demonstrably towards women and towards unborn children, towards born children in adoption in other ways. But I'm real eager that we not become a narrowly pro-life church, but a broadly pro-life church. And that's why I entitled this message having to do with orphans and HIV. And, and here's the connection that I see. Since the breakup of the Soviet Union about 10 years ago, the states, this is just representative, many of the states have discovered the freedom of birth control both in uh, contraceptives and in abortion. And they have gone hog wild in the use of them. In Romania, for example, there are three abortions for every live birth. It is the highest abortion rate in the world. And yet, this country, Romania, has not rid itself of unwanted children. In fact, perhaps as much as any country in Europe, babies are abandoned by the hundreds, I read last year, hundreds on the doorsteps of orphanages and hospitals in Romania. 350,000 street children huff inhalants, panhandle, live underneath bridges in municipal dumps in Bucharest and other cities in Romania. The orphanage and the orphan problem is simply huge. And 
take now into consideration the fact that the church is called to take risks and take action to move on this. The church in Romania, the church around the world, there should be no uncared for orphans in the world anywhere. In the womb or out of the womb. And yet in sub-Saharan Africa, the situation is even worse. AIDS right now, the HIV virus, infects about 30 million people in the world. 16,000 are being infected with the HIV virus every day. Estimates are that 5.8 million new infections are happening each year, which would bring the total number of HIV cases to about 40 million year 2000. 2.3 million people died of AIDS in 1997, a 50% increase as best we can judge over the previous year. 460,000 of these were children under 15. In sub-Saharan Africa, one in 13 sexually active adults has HIV virus. In Botswana, for example, 30% of the adult population are infected with the AIDS virus or have AIDS. And here's the staggering result on children. 8.4 million children have been orphaned by AIDS. And perhaps a quarter of those have AIDS or have the virus. Now, these are mind-numbing numbers. And we're called to respond to this sin and calamity and futility with verse 27. Visit. This is a massive word. Visit them. Visit them. <laughs> the word visitation, when I was growing up in Southern Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina, didn't carry much bigness. It didn't feel like a big word. It feels like a big word to me today. And the reason it feels like a big word is not just because of this verse, but because of the, the biblical background behind this verse. Let me read you a few verses to show you what I mean. Exodus 4.31 The Lord has visited the children of Israel in Egypt, and He has looked upon their affliction. Visitation is something that God Almighty does. Or Luke chapter 1, verse 68, at the coming of Jesus, Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. So visiting is a huge redemptive word with great, joyful, healing, redemptive overtones. And I say, what a calling for Bethlehem Baptist Church. What a calling for our pro-life committee. What a calling for the MICA Fund. If you don't know about the MICA Fund in this church that funds adoptions of children who have to be given up because of abortion not being followed through on and the parents not being able to carry through Know them. A great calling for how many in this room are looking for what to do with the last third of your life. This is another one of my favorite calls now out of Phoenix and Arizona and every other place that people plan to spend their lives. This is a call to go to Romania. It's a call to go to Ukraine. It's called to take the years from, say, 60 to 70 
and pour out your life, not on the golf course, but in the orphanages of the world, fulfilling this great, great command. Oh, let us dream, baby boomers. Let us be finishers who know how to get ready to meet the king with a pure and undefiled religion. Fill in the blank. Pure and undefiled religion at age 65 is. Or is this not a call upon many in this room? Now, this is the college class. Raise your hand if you're a student in this room right now. Raise your hand. Okay. 200, 300. This is a call for how to spend the first two-thirds of your life. Not just the last third of your life. You wonder what to do with your life? There are about 8.4 million reasons in the world to give yourself to children. Think about it. Pray about it. Fill in the blank. Pure and undefiled religion for ages 20 to 60 is blank. My closing comment is this. John... Somebody says, what about the widows? You didn't say anything about the widows. Are you going to just pass over the word widows? What did you hear in the word widows? They're in the text. And here's what I heard. To be a widow, or let's say it this way, to become a widow hurts. It's huge. To lose a husband of 50 years or to lose a husband of five months? I don't think she'd mind me saying it, but we dedicated a little baby in the first service. Little Elizabeth Mew, who stood, who sat in her mother's arms without a husband. He went to bed when his wife was five months pregnant. And never woke up. Baby's two years old now. That hurts. Wherever you are, it hurts to lose a spouse. Huge. But you know what? It heals clean. You know what I mean? It heals clean, not dirty. It may take years. But it heals clean. You lop off the arm of the spouse, it heals clean. But the woman whose boyfriend just takes off or says, we get, get this thing fixed. I don't care. Just get it fixed. And she feels alienated by this boyfriend. Her parents may disappear or say, get this thing fixed. Just do it. And she's now isolated. And everybody is trying to make this decision for her. Now there's a situation worse than being a widow. If she follows through. Because she probably is going to lose his boyfriend. She feels like she's going to lose her parents. And she loses her baby. And it doesn't heal clean. It doesn't heal clean. It heals infected. Five years later, the pus is oozing. Twenty-five years later, it's still oozing until Christ comes with His marvelous 
antibiotic of grace, which I now want to hold out to all of you. There may be two dozen women in this room right now for whom this message has just felt like one battering ram. And so, please hear this. Widow stands in the text as a kind of symbolic statement that God doesn't just see the problem of the children in abortion or without abortion. He sees the problem of the mother whose husband either dies or just disappears and whose parents are on her case and she feels so isolated. That's a widow-like isolation, only it gets worse if she's cornered into a choiceless choice and takes the life of her baby. I don't know how many of you were at the Capitol steps on Friday where Denise, oh, what was her last name? What? Walker. Wow. That was the best thing I've heard on the Capitol steps in years. She stood up and she said, I give my right arm to have my three babies. I give my legs. I give anything to have my babies. And then she said, but I found healing in Jesus Christ. And cheers went up because it's a mainly Christian group <laughs> that gathers in the sleet every January 22. And that's the way most of you in this room feel probably who walked through it. I'd give anything to redo that. And it can't be redone. So I offer healing and grace and forgiveness in the name of Jesus to you this morning. That if you will just trust him. Come in alongside him and let him take hold of you as widow or as one who is now married, he will heal. And it won't be any infection anymore. Let me close with this very encouraging word. Some of you feel discouraged in the cause of life, and I want to encourage you. One of the reasons discouragement mounts is this. It looks like we speak two different languages, the pro-choice and the pro-life camp. The pro-choice camp seems to speak the woman language, and the pro-life camp seems to speak the baby language. And there's no overlap and no common ground, seemingly. And we just go on and on and on. And that's not true anymore. Because what the church has done in the last 25 years is provide a kind of structure so that nobody says anymore in public, like I had in my face, you know, this far away in a pro-life line, where somebody gets in your face and says, when you start caring about the women, we may start caring about the base. Nobody says that anymore. There are tens of thousands of loving, caring, sensitive, proactive clinics for women in crisis all over this country. You can hardly drive five miles in America without being in the reach of one. Nobody says that anymore. And not only that, but listen to this quote from the editor of the National Right to Life News. He said, it isn't true that we speak two different languages. In truth, pro-lifers are bilingual, lifting up both mother and child. And because they are fluent in both languages, which pro-choicers are not, they can lead American women by the most natural route imaginable out of the impasse. 
I think that's very hopeful. I think that's true. Pro-life people in America today have learned through long and painful experience to speak both languages. And so my, my summons to you is to speak for the children, speak for the women, speak for the, the husbands who wanted the baby and couldn't save the baby, speak to the doctors, speak to the politicians, speak to the newspapers, speak to the media, but whatever you do, don't be silent. Because if your tongue, back to verse 26, if your tongue is not used for the orphan and the widow, verse 26 says, your faith may not be anything. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I ask that you would heal the women in this church who have had abortions and those visiting this morning who have had abortions. That the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is beyond imagining full, would be poured out upon them. And that even though we have to speak these two languages, one so painful for them to hear and one so hopeful for them to hear, by your power and grace, you can turn this service to a profound healing. And I pray that there would be, Lord, a mobilization of our people, whether old or whether young, toward visiting. The visitation of God Almighty through his people in the lives of the orphans in the lives of the widows all over the world. Raise up ministries like Doug Owens and like the Pro-Life Committee here and like the Micah Fund here and like New Life Family Services. Lord, raise them up. I'll be standing here at the front. We have prayer teams. They wear little buttons like this. You can raise your head up. They wear little buttons like this standing here at the front. If you want to be prayed for, by a couple or by a pastor or elder. We're going to linger here at the front as long as you want. But why don't you stand with me for a closing benediction?